Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And now for an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. The cannabis plant has a long history of use as a therapeutic for a wide variety of ailments. Although the precise date of the first documented therapeutic use varies, it is believed that the plant's therapeutic benefits have been leveraged for millennia, with some evidence suggesting application as a therapeutic as early as 2800 BC. Historical texts from the Hindus, Greeks, and Romans substantiate long-standing use of cannabis in the treatment of a variety of health problems including depression, inflammation, pain, lack of appetite, and sleep. Over the recent decades and more principally in the recent years, Legislation within the United States and across other nations has changed markedly in terms of cannabis use, whereby some states and nations have fully legalized cannabis for recreational use, while others have adjusted to afford use of cannabis strictly for certain medical conditions, such as glaucoma, epilepsy and seizures, severe and chronic pain, and Alzheimer's disease, among other conditions. For example, Canada approved the Cannabis Act in 2018 which not only afforded medicinal use of cannabis, but also extended use to any person 19 years or older, with some caveats related to legal possession amount and location of use. In the United States, cannabis legislation is mixed and complicated. Although many states have medicinalized, decriminalized, and or fully legalized cannabis use, cannabis remains illegal at the federal level and is still labeled as a Schedule One drug which indicates that cannabis has a high potential for abuse and little to no medical benefit. Regardless of location and regulating legislation, cannabis use is on the rise, medicinally and recreationally. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA, 29% of young adults reported cannabis use within the past month in 2021, which was an increase from 21% in 2016 and 17% in 2011. Daily use has also escalated, with an estimated 11% of young adults using cannabis daily in 2021, compared to 8% of young adults in 2016 and 6% in 2011. Additionally, cannabis use is regularly leveraged as an aid for sleep problems, with an estimated prevalence as high as 70% for use as a sleep aid among regular adult users. In a survey of cannabis users in Canada, conducted across 2011 to 2012, Walsh and colleagues identified that 85% of their sample reported use of cannabis for sleep problems, which was the highest proportion of use among all reported problems. Complementarily, Winninger and colleagues published findings in 2020 indicating that cannabis users generally have increased expectations that cannabis is beneficial for sleep, despite the study also showing that current cannabis use was associated with worse subjective sleep quality. Given the growing and widespread use of cannabis, both medicinally and recreationally, for sleep, it is critically important to clarify the influence of cannabis on sleep 
general sleep problems, and clinical sleep disorders. However, the cannabis plant is extremely complex with over 400 chemical components identified. Among these components, the main components include cannabinol, cannabidiol or CBD, as well as delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol and delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol or THC. Importantly, THC is recognized as the main psychoactive substance and it is thought that CBD and THC have opposing psychoactive effects. There are subspecies of the cannabis plant with indica and sativa serving as the main subspecies. Importantly, these subspecies and unique strains within the subspecies will vary significantly in their proportional composition of CBD and THC. Thus, it is likely that various strains of cannabis will have differential effects based on the ratio of components. Route of administration is another complicating factor in the context of cannabis, whereby administration can occur through vaporizing, smoking, and ingestion of concentrates, oils, and food products. Yet, the various routes of administration is also an attractive feature of cannabis, as this can improve the viability for use of the substance across various populations of need. Clearly, the complexity of the cannabis plant creates major challenges for determining the appropriate strain, dosing, and route of administration to enhance therapeutic benefit. Thus, it is essential for research to help clarify these dynamics to improve the application for cannabis as a therapeutic for sleep and other medical problems. In today's episode, I am joined by Rob Velzebor and Dr. Wayne Weku Lai to discuss their recent publication in the journal Sleep, entitled Cannabis Dosing and Administration for Sleep, a Systematic Review which unpacks a systematic review purpose to analyze the effects of cannabis on sleep in efforts to guide appropriate and effective cannabis dosage recommendations and prescriptions for patients seeking medicinal benefit for sleep. Before diving into today's interview, here's a brief background on today's guests, Rob Velzebor and Dr. Wayne Weku Lai. Rob Velzebor is a clinical researcher at Trank Sleep Care, a Canadian-based clinical sleep network. Rob graduated from the London School of Economics with a Master's of Science in Philosophy and Public Policy and is passionate about epistemology, the nature of evidence, and evidence-based public policy. Following the legalization of cannabis in Canada in 2018 and obtaining his master's degree in 2020, Rob started working at Trank Sleep Care under Dr. Wayne Lai in 2021 to study the effects of cannabis on sleep. Dr. Wayne Lai is a distinguished sleep medicine specialist based in Kelowna, British Columbia. With over 15 years of experience in the field, Dr. Lai is recognized as an expert in the diagnosis and treatment of sleep disorders. He is the founder of Trank Sleep Care, which has won several awards and operates at seven locations around British Columbia, where his team provides compassionate and personalized care to patients struggling with sleep-related issues. Dr. Lai also holds an appointment at the University of British Columbia as a clinical assistant professor and is an active member of several medical associations, including the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, the Canadian Society of Clinical Neurophysiologists, and the Canadian Sleep Society, and is committed to advancing the field of sleep medicine and improving patient outcomes through advocacy, research, and policy development. So without further ado... Here is my interview with Rob Velzebor and Dr. Wayne Weku Lai. I hope you enjoy. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. 
Rob Velsbor and Dr. Wayne Lai, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss your research. I am really excited about today's topic and diving into all the complexity and challenges, if you will. But before we talk anything scientific, it's always very important to just know how you're doing. So Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jesse. How are you? I'm living the dream, kind of. I'm in my dissertation stage, so every day is filled with anxiety and panic and feelings of worthlessness. But eventually this will get done, and I will fight the resistance. But I appreciate you asking, and thank you for joining us today. Dr. Lai, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. I was hoping that winter here in Kelowna can pass fairly soon. But looking forward to the arrival of the spring. Oh, I feel you on that front. Although I feel blessed today in Madison, Wisconsin, we're actually going to approach 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is atypical for this time of year. But I know that the weather's been extremely volatile here. We've been getting snow basically dumped on by snow, a ton of ice, some highly problematic wind speeds. How are things where you're at? I wouldn't say as good. I mean, this morning, very icy roads. It's not crazy for this time of year. It's pretty normal in Canada, but uh, I couldn't get my car out of the driveway. So it's, it's pretty snowy this morning. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a few times this winter that the, uh, the road condition can be quite treacherous, especially driving between Florida and Vancouver through the mountain passes. I can only imagine. That ice is the biggest problem. Super dangerous. I can handle cold weather as long as it's not too windy. It's when you get that sleet of ice on the roads, on your car, whatever it may be. It just makes life a living nightmare. So Rob, thank you for persevering, showing your resiliency, showing up in one piece. I hope you've stayed upright all day, both of you, and not slipped yet. I know I took a tumble a couple days back, but I'm okay. And so we will survive. But I appreciate you both finding the ability to carve out time for this. And in the show orientation prior to the interview here, I've Given the listeners an introduction to both of you, your backgrounds, thank you for providing those biographies. It makes our lives a lot easier, but it's always still appreciated from the listeners to have you tell your stories and tell a little bit more about yourself. So we'll start with Rob and then we'll pass it back to Dr. Lai here in a second. Rob, I'm excited for this one. Can you please tell us about your journey to sleep and circadian research? Yeah, so my journey actually isn't so clear and probably not what you'd expect uh, from the average guest on the show. So far, I've only been studying the social sciences as I hold a bachelor's degree in philosophy, politics, and economics from the University of British Columbia. And then I have a master's of science in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics. So definitely not anything medical related. I do have a very strong interest in epistemology, so which is more to do with theory of knowledge and designing policies that align with available evidence and to me, I guess it was surprising to find that the evidence on cannabis and sleep is currently still quite lacking despite, you know, the widespread use of this. So Dr. Lai opened a research clinic, or at least like a research unit to his clinic and position his company here in Colorado about two years ago. And uh, I just looked at the role and the research that they were proposing and decided to apply. And that's how I ended up here. So it's probably not the same as, as what you'll hear from most guests. Beautiful. And that's why I love this platform is to hear the uniqueness of journeys. I don't ask that question to get the same stock answer of I went to graduate school and then I went to an academic track and now I'm here. Right. 
I love it because we all have these divergent routes and oftentimes it's just a unique moment, like a job opportunity that propels us into this space. I will say, in preparation for today's episode, I searched your name in the Google and I found that you, you gave a TED Talk on chickens. Is that correct? <laughs> Shit. This has actually been my big thing uh, for quite a few years. Also, in, in the research that I was doing, I've studied animal sentience quite a bit before. But I guess you looked at the general argument that's basically that in terms of our dieting, the number of animals that we eat is very disproportionately skewed towards chickens. And, uh, and given, I guess, the evidence of sentience and their ability to suffer, it's been sort of a, a social course that I guess I've taken on. Definitely very far removed from anything to do with circadian science. But a very, very interesting topic to me, for sure. And one that I would love to talk to you about for many, many hours, as I have a lot of opinions on that front, too. And I know that my sister, an organic farmer back in California, also has a lot of thoughts on that as well. So maybe we'll have to schedule you for a conversation with the cooks, Alexis and Jesse, to talk more about that one. But for now, Dr. Lai, can you tell us about your journey to sleep and circadian research as well as sleep medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jess, for inviting us uh, again today. So my background, uh, I was trained as a neurologist. One might expect there's quite a bit of overlap between neurological condition related to any kind of sleep disorder. So once I graduated as a, a neurologist, I, I was also involved taking care of patients with sleep medicine since 2007. I moved back to Canada in 2010 from U.S. A few years ago, when Canada legalized cannabis, I think it was back in 2018, I started encountering more patients coming to the clinic asking about cannabis and if they can take cannabis or how they can take cannabis to treat their condition. And at that time, I really don't have any concrete response or a recommendation that I can provide to patients. So that, this has kind of prompted me to start looking into what are the current literature saying about cannabis and how they can be used in treating conditions. We started embarking into the field of cannabis in 2018 and 19, and, and then Rob came along, uh, which has been fantastic. And that's how we started doing the systemic review in preparation for hopefully a randomized studies uh, on cannabis and sleep disorder in the future. I really appreciate that you have prioritized filling this gap. And we'll certainly talk about the literature that you've pulled and the quality of the studies and the utility of the studies and the consistency or lack thereof across studies, if you will. So there's a major need here. And I just appreciate that the two of you are trying to progress that area. Now, Dr. Lai, I imagine you have a ton of free time when you're not being a researcher or a physician joking there, of course. But when you're not tending to those roles, if you will, what do you do in your spare time? You're right, Jesse. I do have tons of free time that I can do other things besides clinical work. Joking aside, I think most of my time, um, aside from the clinic and taking care of patients, it will be spending my time with family and attending sports events and other things with my children. And I, I do also try to, I guess, maintain my health the best I can by go to gym, exercises, participate in sports, that type of thing. And in Kelowna, we are such, we are so blessed that we have mountain and we have lake nearby. 
So ski is a big event here in, in Kelowna uh, in the winter time and water sports would be a main event here in the summertime. Love it. And I'm super jealous of your mountains and your awesome water. Although I have pretty good water here in Madison, I do not have mountains. I have glorified hills and it irks me. But I heard that you like going to sporting events and like sports. Any sports in particular, or should I just make the assumption that it's hockey? <laughs> hockey definitely is a big sports here in Kelowna. It's, it's, it's almost like a Canadian national sport. I think beside that, though, uh, my son plays basketball and my daughter does cross-country running. So I, I'm very into basketball um, as well myself. And I, I don't know if drinking one considers a, a hobby or sports, but in Okanagan, it's really impossible not to develop the habit of tasting wines. Uh, so sometimes we do that as well. Fair enough. I think it's a hobby, an interest, and it can certainly be translated into a sport as well. So we'll fit that into that category. Rob, same question to you. When not advancing the field of sleep research, what do you like to do in your spare time? I think uh, quite similar to Dr. Lai, uh, what I would say about wine and uh, for me, snowboarding, I don't ski, but I love to snowboard. I also really like trying out plant-based foods. There's a lot of uh, plant-based stuff here mm -hmm. in the West Coast in Kelowna. It's pretty good. I box. I don't really compete in it. I used to compete a little bit, but I, I really like coaching it and helping people just learning self-defense. I do a bit of digital painting and stuff that I definitely like doing. And actually, like if, in terms of the more academic things, I'm trying to get into researching meat consumption more, pursuing a PhD on that. So that's kind of my current goal, I guess, the thing that I'm working on. Groovy. And I share alignment there in values. I, I'm not entirely plant-based, but I love to explore plant-based options. I went to um, LA recently, which I've heard is a really good place for vegan foods. But to my surprise, I found Kelowna, which is probably not too well known. I don't know if you haven't heard of before as a town. It's actually got a lot of good restaurants for this. Pretty much any place is options for it. There's a lot of good pastas, burgers. There's like vegan specific restaurants. So it's, it's pretty exciting to be here for it. Sweet. Well, I look forward to seeing your research program unfold there and we'll have to talk back channel more because I want to pick your brain on a lot of things. And if I can steer you to maybe staying in the space of not necessarily just nutrition, but meal timing as well and its effect on sleep and circadian health. I got to steer you to Dr. Marie Pierre St. Ong. She's fantastic and does a lot of great work in that space. So if you're ever trying to form a collaboration, looking at different dietary compositions and how it affects sleep outcomes, I think she would be very much open to that. So I love everything the two of you are doing, and I don't want to take up all your time so that each of you can go back to those awesome hobbies and interests, but I have some, some more fun vocational questions here. Rob, I do want to know, when you were a child, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? It's again quite different. I think a uh, Disney animator was something I walked through, which clearly did not happen. I'm actually quite surprised again that I ended up on your podcast, Jesse. Did you ever come across the potentially a conspiracy theory out there that Disney animators left clues or different little subtle, I'm blanking on the right word, but different little themes in their animations. Have you come across that at all that, that you'd have to really have a finite granular lens to see? I'm not sure. Do you mean like Easter eggs? Like those kinds of things? A little bit of an Easter egg, kind of like subliminal messaging was the word I was trying to land on. I may have heard of that. Yeah. It's like the, the lion lays down and lion king. You see this, this dust coming up and it forms a word for one second. 
things like that. I, I don't know too much about it though. I've, I've seen the theory though about it having a certain influence. Yeah. Very cool. We'll have to dig, dig into that later. But if you still have the creative spin and animation, I would absolutely leverage your skill set here for the SRS podcast. So I have now anointed you as the digital creator for the future content we create. Thank you, Rob, for that. Dr. Lai, when you were a child, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? Yeah, so that's a very fun question. I, I was just thinking back when I was a child, I, I would love to be a robotic scientist. And, and that's mainly because Japanese cartoon was very popular uh, back in Taiwan when I was growing up. Uh, and, you know, they have this cartoon where you have a big, gigantic ro robot. It's like a Pacific Rim robot. They use that to have people sitting in there, you know, controlling the robot and fight against monsters. To me, that was uh, my highlight of my childhood is to wait every week for this episode of this movie or this animation to come up. So that was my um, aspiration as a child is to be a robotic scientist that can build something like that and protect the earth. Love it. Well, maybe you can apply that vocational desire with your awesome brain and create us a robot that can solve our big social and climate issues that are facing us globally. How about that? That sounds awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Lai, I will ask though, you know, you are a sleep physician, neurologist as well, and also a researcher, but if you could pick any other career at this point in life, what would you choose? You know, I probably would, and I have thought about it several times to be a basketball coach. And that's primarily because my, both my children are playing basketball and I'm finding it very interesting. It's a very, um, multidisciplinary sports in terms of what, what's involved and people are involved. And I, and I kind of feel that it, it's a good game for children to be involved in terms of developing, not just the basketball skill, but the life skill within the team and within playing basketball. So I, I just, you know, for the last few years, I just have a passion to, to be in that space and, and hopefully to have enough of a skill to be a good basketball coach. Well, I think the door's open there. I previously, when life afforded me time to do so, when I first moved to Madison, I coached Little League Baseball for two years. And I really found that, or I was called to that, and it's for similar reasons that you just unpacked, is that these sports can teach such important life lessons about teammanship, about putting in effort, not focusing on results. And of course, the physical elements of how to move your body without hurting yourself and having relationships with movements that are really important for health and well-being going forward. So all these skills, you're not necessarily signing your, your kid for, but they're indirect benefits from learning the game of basketball or learning the game of baseball. And to be a coach, you have such a blessed opportunity to provide that learning lesson for, for the growing next generation of individuals. Now, Rob, same question. If you weren't making TED Talks about chickens or pursuing a PhD related to different, were you unpacking meat, I think, in your PhD and, and the effects of meat in particular, probably quality of meat, things like that. If you weren't doing that, any career you would like to choose, what would you choose? Mm, it's actually difficult. Um, I think I really like what I'm doing. Uh, like I said, the animation thing was definitely something that I was interested in as a kid. And I did pursue it at one point. I'd applied to some schools and got in, but still decided to go with the other route. Well, the door's open here. You can, you can come be our animator, or I've already anointed you that, so your career's changing. Deal with it. All right, now that we've set the stage with personalities and 
we've established a banter and I may have damaged my relationship with Rob. Let's actually dive into the science here and we'll rev our scientific engines by doing our standard keyword association. For new listeners, this is strictly a word association, but with a scientific spin, hence the name keyword. Some of these keywords were actually on the manuscript and some of them I just added. And truthfully to the listeners out there, as is stock for this podcast, in my construction of a show outline, I don't provide these to the guests. So these are hot off the cognitive press, if you will. Rob, Dr. Lai, as I explained to you in our pre-show discussion, I'm just gonna give you a word or a phrase. And first thing that comes to mind, you are unconstrained here. If you want to spend two hours responding, go for it. Although I'd steer you more toward a shorter form response. All right, Rob, are you ready for the keyword association? Am I ready? Sure, let's go ahead. Perfect. First word, Rob, cannabis. To me, it immediately makes you think of sleep. I know a lot of people use it for that purpose. Of course, I've researched it quite a bit now. Still very interested in, in doing future research on this. Perfect. Dr. Lai, tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. So it is one of the things that came to me when patient mentioned THC would be something that caused patient to have euphoria or, or high. Uh, and something that can also potentially cause impairment while driving or performing at a high risk of physical behavior. The next two are pretty similar, but I'm curious to see if there's kind of differential response here. We'll start with Rob. Sleep aid. Mm. Sleep aid. Well, of course, we're talking about cannabis. That's what I'm thinking about. Dr. Lai, in a similar vein, but slightly different, sleep medication. So sleep medication to me... Uh, I guess to most people, we imply a prescribed substance that helps patients to sleep better. However, um, for some patients, um, sleep medication can also mean a non-prescribable over-the-counter or other substance such as cannabis that are they, they perceive to be a safer option when it comes to choosing between cannabis versus a pharmacological or synthetic substance that are made in the lab. Final two phrases here, Rob, when I say dose-dependent effects, what comes to mind? Oh, well, just yesterday, I was looking at some studies uh, from the 70s using something like 70 to 200 milligrams of THC. Definitely what, what, what must have happened to those patients in that study. Yeah, definitely, again, something we really want to dig into. Not enough evidence on, uh, on what the effects of different doses are. Perfect. And last phrase here for Dr. Lai, route of administration. So that means um, to me, different way of how patient or individual can take a certain substance or compound into their system and can be inhaled, ingesting or drinking or injecting. Uh, so a different way of intaking a substance into the body. Beautiful. And that certainly sets the stage, revs our engine. I think we're prepared for flight. So as I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode focuses specifically on your recent investigation that you and your colleagues published in Sleep, which is entitled Cannabis Dosing and Administration for Sleep, a Systematic Review. So initially, listeners, I'm going to ask Rob and Dr. Lai to provide a 10,000-foot view of the investigation, and then we'll take a bit of a deeper dive into the manuscript some of the methodologies, findings, and certainly the implications and and where we can go from here. So why don't we start with this, Rob? 
what fueled you to perform this research? Yeah, maybe Dr. Lai can explain a little bit here about the, the background with the funding that we received uh, for performing cannabis research, how it came together. And then Dr. Lai, I'll talk a bit about how the idea for the study came about more. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, so during uh, my career as a neurologist in sleep medicine, often we get asked by patients different questions, something that they found on the internet, things that they can find at a supermarket, if I can use this to help with my condition rather than taking quote-unquote a prescribed medication. I think especially in, in Okanagan, yeah, people are very health conscious. Uh, they, they would look for other alternatives before they would embark on taking any kind of medications. So it's quite common that we get presented with certain things that have been advertised on, on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, things of that nature. So since 2018, Canada have legalized cannabis. In the past, they, they have been used, but mostly for medical reasons, such as treating patients with Parkinson-related symptoms or multiple sclerosis symptoms. But since the legalization, there is a significant increase of interest or I guess coming out of a closet claim that, that from patients that they are taking cannabis uh, and because I'm a sleep physician, they come to me asking, you know, doctor, um, sh can I take cannabis? If I can, what, what, sh what should I take and what should I do and how should I take it to help my sleep? Because when they, when they go to a dispensary, they've been bombarded with different brand, different dosing and different product from different company and they all claim to help with sleep. So during pandemic, uh, it, it strike me that people are actually turning into cannabis more than anything else. And at that time, um, as a physician, we practice evidence-based medicines. So I have to turn into literature and, and start educating myself as to how should I make my recommendation when patients ask me for that particular question. And it turns out that there isn't a lot of recommendation that that is sort of consensus rate of recommendation. A lot of study here and there, and the results are sometimes conflicting. Uh, and so that's prompted me to say that perhaps, you know, being in Okanagan, not only we have a lot of winery, we also have a lot of cannabis growers as well. So I started reaching out to the grow here in Okanagan to see if they would be interested to do a more scientific randomized studies. Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of companies that are quite interested in, in doing the study like this. Uh, so we have started talking to a few companies and then I subsequently approach uh, our health authority, which is the, the health uh, organization that governed a health delivering in this particular region called internal health. And they're also quite interested of looking into that aspect of care for patient, not just in sleep, but other things, including pain management. From that, uh, we're able to form a, a formal collaboratory relationship with some grower here in Okanagan. And that's how these, the funding of the study gets started and with the support of the local grower, as well as the health authority uh, here in Kelowna. Yeah, maybe I'll follow Jesse. So then from that, how the idea for the study came about was that we needed to know if we were going to run a clinical trial and look at the effects of cannabis generally, uh, we'd need an idea of what a normal extract and dose would look like. Now, cannabinol, cannabidiol, and tetrahydrocannabinol are the main components, as you already mentioned. Uh, but 
like we've discussed and what ratios and doses you consume these to get therapeutic benefits is not so clear. Um, actually, funnily enough, it, it actually seems that the anecdotes you can get at local dispensaries and informal websites are often more informative in this sense, almost in the clinical literature, because there is so little on it. And you will get a lot of people sharing their personal experiences. So we looked at that quite a bit too. And then Dr. Light connected me with a local uh, UBC, that's the University, University of British Columbia, an MD student there who was the main uh, or the other main author on this paper. So his name is Adib Malas. And we wanted to see if he had any interest in doing this research together. So he attracted a couple of other students with interest in aiding this research as well. And that's kind of how we devised a little research team to dig into this question, what doses, extracts, and ratios of cannabis can we use to improve sleep or to, to aid sleep? Perfect. And it makes a lot of sense. The cat's out of the bag on cannabis, if you will, in the United States, globally. Uh, Rob, you're originally from the Netherlands. Certainly they were more on the forefront of change in implementation and integration. A large percentage of society is either using it recreationally or therapeutically. And right now it seems to be undetermined for a variety of conditions. What is the appropriate combination of dose with route of administration? And there's going to be no universals, right? Because some individuals are going to respond differently than others. Some are going to have inhibitions against certain forms of routes of administration, or they might be contraindicated based on comorbidities they may have. But we need to start pulling back the layers on this complexity. Uh, because as I said, the cat's out of the bag. And as I, Dr. Lai pointed out, his clients are coming to him with questions day in and day out. And he probably feels a bit helpless uh, without being able to provide some sort of evidence-based recommendation on this front. So I appreciate that this is a focal aspiration and, and longitudinal here, and not just a singular systematic review, but part of a bigger picture of teasing back this complicated land space or landscape. So broadly speaking, oh, go ahead, Dr. Lai. I'm sorry, Jason, if you don't mind, I think you brought up a good point that because there's also a significant social stigma associated, which we'll probably would discuss it later, associated with the use of cannabis. So when I first started um, asking or getting input from other people about doing cannabis research, I, most people frown upon that, that idea of, are you studying cannabis? Uh, you know, it's that, that kind of stigma. Uh, and it's important to break that stigma is for to understand exactly how it works and, 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 and what dosing and accomplishment actually works. And we can obtain a, a good scientific evidence. So as a physician, we're able to provide that back to the patient. Uh, so if we're able to get a good evidence um, saying that, you know, this works for a particular condition, then we can confidently recommend patient in a community to approach that specific therapeutic approach. It would be wonderful to have informed recommendations in this space. So hopefully we can get there. I know many people anecdotally derive a ton of benefit, not just in sleep, but across a variety of conditions, physical, psychological, whatever it may be. And yet we still have absence of clear guidance on these fronts. So it's efforts like what the two of you and your colleagues are doing that's necessary to push us forward. But specifically for this investigation, how did you approach kind of answering that question, Rob? What, what methodology did you utilize? Yeah, so to be really fair, I think looking back now, we were a little too optimistic going into the study. And it was noted by a peer reviewer to a scoping review initially might have been a bit more fitting because we expected to find especially plenty of recent literature since legislation has gotten more lenient around cannabis use. 
and sales and cannabis, as you already noted, is so often reported as a sleep aid that we expect that because of that, quite a few newly available studies will be here that we could look at. But with the inclusion criteria we set, it became quite difficult to find enough studies to do some form of meta-analysis. Uh, we didn't find enough studies with similar designs, which we'll probably get back into a bit later on. So we more or less took on the same methodology as a study performed back in 2019 by Sophie Miller and her team on cannabidiol dosing in clinical populations. And then we just apply the same methodology to cannabis in general, but then for sleep specifically. So we ended up screening for both cannabis use and some form of sleep-related outcome, which could either be something like the percentage of REM sleep or sleep onset latency or simply self-reported sleep quality. So we went to perform a systematic review of all the literature. Uh, we went over more than 4,500 articles and we used a search strategy that was suggested by Brahmer and his team. Uh, and we knew that there was some relevant literature available from the 1970s, quite some time ago, almost 50 years ago. And since Embase, uh, Medline, and Web of Science didn't necessarily index studies from the 70s properly, we didn't employ mesh terms, and we instead just scanned the entire literature of any article that mentioned both some form of cannabis use in combination with some form of sleep outcome. And maybe interesting for you, Jesse, I don't know if you would like to get into this as a background about the time frame when the studies were published that were in our study that we included. Um, from the 1970s, we had four. Then the 80s and 90s, both there were zero. I guess this is following the, I don't know if it's to do with the war on drugs or something where there's just no research available on this anymore. 2000s, we got another four studies. The 2010s, we had 18 studies. And then for the 2020s, I mean, the cutoff was in June of 2021 because that's when we performed our search. Uh, we had five studies from those. So at that rate, if we continue to do research at the current rate, we'll probably have over 30 by the end of this decade. So there's definitely a growing, growing literature. Yeah, we were also considering taking out synthetic kinds of cannabis like dronabinol and nabilone and such and just purely focus on THC and CBD. But if we did that, then there was just too little left to work with for our review if we did so. Uh, we also considered, and we did actually go through with this, we wanted the sample to be cannabis naive as dosing is different for regular users, but not all studies mention whether they did or did not exclude patients based on that. Most of them do. So in the end, we just broadened the scope to first start with all of the available evidence on cannabis and sleep outcomes of any kind. And then we kind of narrowed it down to sleep quality and architecture specifically. And we decided on defining improvements or changes after cannabis intake based on what the original authors of the study would comment. That's a great overview. And I was taken aback by the fact that one, you had to review 4,500 pieces of literature. Uh, kudos to you and your team for that one, but that it winnowed down to 31 total studies. I fully understand the rationale for the various inclusion or exclusion criteria to have more of kind of a valid, homogenous approach here, if you can, in an extremely heterogeneous space. But it was just fascinating to me that that's all that's been produced. And I'm no historian, and I'm not going to politically soapbox or anything, but I think you're spot on that that big gap, that two-decade period in the 80s and 90s of absence of literature is probably the result of the classification as a Schedule One drug in the United States. I believe that occurred in the 1970s, if my memory serves me correctly, or around that time. So it seems to make sense from a timeline that that's probably the causal factor or what explains the most variance in the absence of that literature. And it is encouraging that we're going to have potentially, I wouldn't call it a boom, but an increase 
in quality literature emerging over the coming decade, but it still seems extremely slow moving. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit. But broadly speaking here, Rob, and maybe we'll pass it back to Dr. Lai at some point here too, but what did, what did you two find and what did you and your colleagues find across the investigation? Yeah, so first to answer our research question, we found that trying to summarize the evidence on dosing and making any recommendations was virtually impossible. Now, do know that all the following statements I'll make are based on, you might say, not the most rigorous research standards, again, because it's not really possible with the available literature. But overall, we found that fewer than half of the studies that we included showed positive effects for sleep. Um, in terms of cannabinoids, it seemed that THC showed more promise than CBD for improving sleep. In terms of disorders, uh, comparing sleep, psychiatric, neurological uh, disorders and pain disorders, it seemed that pain-related disorders showed the most promise. For dosing, again, no clarity at all. Timing, also surprisingly, almost no clarity. And then for the methods, we found that self-report surveys showed improvements very frequently, but the diagnostic methods didn't really. There wasn't really any clarity from that coming out. For cannabis types, we only had four studies using purely CBD, or at least randomized controlled trials. Only one of those showed improvements. Uh, well, for THC and the derivatives, we included 11 students, or 11 studies, sorry. And uh, five of those showed improvements. For disorders, the, re the pain-related disorders, uh, four out of seven of the trials showed some improvements, and three out of four uncontrolled studies. Whereas for sleep, it was only one out of four of the randomized trials for neuropsychiatric disorders, same thing, uh, and for healthy participants as well. So, like I said, expected most effective for pain. In terms of the, the randomized controlled trials and the uncontrolled trials, what we saw with the self-report studies is that in the randomized trials, seven out of 16 randomized trials showed improvements, whereas with the uncontrolled trials, it was eight out of nine. So trying to explain that, I think one potential explanation for so many of them showing improvements is that the participants may have had a certain expectation from the treatment. And that actually has been reported in studies before where participants can expect sleep improvements because they know they're on cannabis or they won't be getting cannabis. But it's also been found generally in several fields now that uncontrolled trials do simply produce higher estimates of the mean effect than the ones that you would obtain in a controlled trial. So it's, it's not super surprising to see that. For the diagnostics, we saw one uncontrolled trial showing improvements, and that was among patients with dementia. Um, so we saw a reduction in nocturnal motor activity and aberrant motor behavior, but nothing in terms of sleep architecture in the other studies. And as you said, I don't necessarily find that too surprising. When I was reading through the, literature, the, the manuscript, I was trying to make sense of the absence of translation from the subjective measures to the objective measures while in connection with the fact that RCTs don't seem to be demonstrating the effect at the same rate as the uncontrolled non-randomized studies. And to me, I think you landed on the big theme there, which is the positive expectations of cannabis per se, shaping more of a psychological benefit, maybe not necessarily a detectable physiological benefit. But there's obviously nuance there as well as whether or not this was a singular day that they took it, whether or not they took it over a long period of time, and was there a prolonged kind of accumulative effect, these types of nuance that I think we haven't even come close to teasing apart. Uh, I think that was a beautiful overview of the main results there. I'm sure we'll talk about it in the complexity here coming up. up. And I'm going to pass the microphone here to Dr. Lai in a second to see if 
he has anything he wants to add to the results. But I found it fascinating. We're going to draw on this word variation quite a bit. And the variation in the range of dosages that were included across the literature. For CBD, just to point out some high-level ones here, the dosages ranged from 15 to 6,000 milligrams per day. Yes, you heard me correctly, 15 to 6,000 milligrams per day. I assume that we will have some dose-dependent effects there. And there are many people out there that say, I take this amount of CBD and I have no effect. Well, maybe there's something here to tease apart. Similarly, with THC, it ranged from 2.5 to 30 milligrams a day, I think, across the studies in general. And of course, these things are going to have differential influence on psychological and physiological processes. And similarly, with the sample characteristics, the mean age for at the low end was 23.1 in a study, and in the upper end was 81.5. And so we're dealing with totally different individuals here, young adults, older adults, geriatric populations who may be experiencing immense comorbidities on so many fronts and just differential biological capabilities at that point. It's comparing apples to oranges in some ways, as I think you're kind of alluding to and why no meta-analysis could even be performed, and then sample size differences as well. So just drawing attention to the major variation. But Dr. Lai, is there anything you want to add as far as kind of results that were found? Thank you, Jess. I just wanted to comment on a couple of things. One of which is that, as Robert alluded earlier, that most of the um, positive outcome are based on self-reported outcome. Uh, when we correlate those improvements, the claim improvement with objective data, such as a, a standard overnight uh, polysomography or EEG recording, a little correlation can be identified. However, I should also emphasize that during clinical practice, uh, we always look at the collected data and, and, and also compared out with the clinical outcomes. Sometimes we can collect the beautiful data, expecting that patient will have an improvement based on the data we collected, but clinically they just don't have that, out, that outcome that can sustain that data. So, so there, here's two layers of things that we have to look at it, is what are we collecting and, and, and does that really support a positive outcome based on the finding? Uh, and often they, they, they might not come together uh, but ideally, if we see a positive data collection uh, in terms of improving the sleep architecture, ideally, we would like to see a improvement of sleep symptom in patients, but sometimes that does not happen. So it, in, uh, it's our hope uh, doing a randomized study is that we're able to look at patient's outcome and be able to back it up with objective scientific evidence. Well said. And sometimes that's the mystery of interventions though, right? where we see this so much in the mental health space where we don't necessarily see physiology or physiological markers changing, but people are reporting benefits. And it's an easier story to tell when those two things converge on one another. And sometimes is just not having access to the right physiological or objective biomarker or outcome or whatever it may be. And I think that's going to be an element in this space as well is standardizing the type of outcomes we want to focus on. And it may be context dependent, right? Disorder dependent. Are we focusing on sleep initiation? Are we focusing on disrupted sleep due to sleep disordered breathing? It really depends on that front. But it seemed that it was a wild, wild west in the literature on what people wanted to focus on as their outcome. And that makes it impossible for you and your colleagues to really synthesize the data appropriately. Uh, so I think that's a perfect kind of launching point to go deeper into the actual manuscript and its implications. Now, 
as I informed both of you, generally call this section deeper dives into the weeds. But for avoidance of a poor pun, we're going to call it deeper dive into the brush today. How about that? And for the first one, we've already been dancing around this quite a bit. In fact, we probably hit it on the head with a hammer already, but I want to open it up with it. Clearly, you had intentions for a meta-analysis. It's clearly written in the discussion section there as well that you were intending to do this, but you couldn't. And it wasn't the quality of the studies that were included that was attended to in your methodology. So it's clearly due to the heterogeneity across the studies. And perhaps we can open up here, Rob, with kind of what are some of the big factors that are contributing to the variation across these studies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I should first note, just a quick note on the quality of the studies. It wasn't quite good. Um, and it does kind of depend on how you define quality as well, because we use the, the Cochrane risk of bias tool to assess the, the bias in the studies that we included, because it's in line with the Prisma guidelines, but it doesn't necessarily assess the overall real quality of the studies. It's more about the potential biases. So it doesn't account for things like we're talking about sample size, sampling bias, whether a finding is clinically meaningful and relevant, like those kinds of things. But we did find that most studies that we included were low risk of bias. So you made a list of things. I think the first is the, the measuring instruments. So like we just discussed, there's the subjective instrument first. So for self-report improvements, there were a total of 15 different validated instruments that were used. Then all the two self-made surveys and two studies even failed to clarify any measuring instrument at all. They just noted sleep as a little outcome of whether this had improved or not. You got to imagine that these are also often pain-related uh, studies. So it's not like it was their primary outcome, of course. It's one of the secondary variables in there. PSQI, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, was used four times, and the numerical rating scales also four times. All the other ones were just used a singular time in each study. So again, there's just no way to, to do a sort of meta-analysis on that kind of data. For the diagnostic measurements, six studies used polysomnography, then two used EEGs, and one used actigraphy. And I'll add another layer of complexity there, the different kinds of disorders these studies looked at. So... The PSGs, in three cases, they looked at healthy participants, so not suffering from any particular disorder, uh, just looking at their sleep architecture and how it was affected. Then one of them looked at REM sleep behavior disorder, and three of them looked at obstructive sleep apnea, which does often seem to improve, by the way, just the sleep architecture didn't really change in those studies or sleep onsets and such. Then for the EEGs, dementia one time, healthy participants one time, and the activity also among dementia, people with dementia. And that was actually the one that study that showed some uh, improvements in the girl motor activity and the aberrant motor behavior. That was the one improvement that we saw with the sort of objective measurement tools. Yeah, quite obviously, based on that data, it just wasn't possible to run any kind of meta-analysis on what came out of that. Um, I guess we can go about a whole bunch of points here because there's a lot of different ones. I'm not sure how you want to kind of direct this, Jesse, if you want to go through them one by one, the points that you kind of set out or... Yeah, we'll just flow through them organically and see where we want to land our plane because we've definitely talked about the contributing factors that are inhibiting the meta-analysis previously, but I just wanted to have kind of a more focused discussion on it. And it seems that within just this term cannabis, even in like CBD, THC, even in these broad categories, we're still ignoring nuance there as well when it comes to different strains of plant, whether the two main umbrellas of sativa and indica and ratios within that. So largely just want to maybe drill home the theme that the existing literature is highly variable across just about every sort of methodological characteristic that could be 
considered. Is that a fair, fair conclusion at this point? Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely how it is. All right. So we also set the stage earlier with the notion, Rob, you did a great job kind of on the timeline there that had a couple of investigations, like four in the 70s, nothing in the 80s and 90s, and then some sprinklings as we've now gone to present day, which unfolded in 31 studies that you included in this systematic review. Not a lot of literature, right? So clearly there are some challenges and barriers to progressing this line of important research. And we already landed on one earlier that there's the complexity of legalization, if you will, in the United States, where at a federal level, it's labeled as a schedule one drug, which means that it has no therapeutic benefit. And that happened, I believe, around the 70s or sometime on that front. Whereas though at the state level, we have major differential legislation. It's very inconsistent where some states in the U.S. are fully legalized, similar to Canada for not just medicinal use, but recreational use as well, as long as you're an adult. Others are still fully criminalized in any sort of cannabis use, even CBD. And there's various spectrums in between. So I think obviously the regulatory differences matter. In Canada, I have to ask, are there any issues with IRB, maybe Dr. Law, you may know this, with your connection to the university, with doing this type of research? Did you have any difficulties with the studies you're attempting to produce coming up here? Yeah, so it is still quite challenging um, to do any kind of therapeutic study with cannabis. My understanding is that even after the legalization, there's still a lot of red tapes that researchers have to go through to be able to do studies in that capacity. And up to date, um, I don't think any randomized study has been conducted and approved so far. I think more recently, they have approved a non-therapeutic studies uh, for cannabis. Uh, we are still exploring exactly what that involves and how we should go about applying for approval. While waiting uh, to go through that process, uh, we have started embarking on more survey type of question understanding how, which is Colombian, how are they uh, consuming uh, cannabis and, and for what reason they are consuming cannabis and, and for the duration and the perceived outcome. So, so we have already started on that. We actually literally started about a month ago, if I recall correctly, Rob. And then within about um, three weeks of advertising, primarily through social media, we already collected close to 600 completed survey. So there's a lot of interest out in the community uh, that they wanted to see some kind of study being done so that they can be, they can be better informed on the consumer side. And I guess from the physician side, uh, it's still a, a, a fantastic idea for us to be more informed and more data to back us up uh, in terms of how we should recommend uh, to patients. That's great to hear. I have no familiarity or background in trying to push any sort of cannabis-based investigation through an IRB here in the United States, but I imagine there's a lot more hurdles to jump through, if you will, than what you're facing in Canada. And that's got to be a major limitation as we go forward. We have to be able to do this kind of research and that requires IRB approval. And I don't know how that's going to change, but it really does seem to need to change. And then on my front too, I also noticed or have come to terms with the notion that science requires money. And so getting money here in the United States is often through federal grants, things like that. Well, with it labeled as a Schedule One narcotic here in the United States, that makes it really, really difficult 
that money is protected in many ways and not utilized in that capacity. So I, we have to find a way to adjust that as well. And I, I don't know when that's going to change or if that's going to change, but I see those as kind of the two big barriers to researchers saying, hey, wait a minute, we got we to gotta empirically understand this. We got to really do the work. We got to do it within certain populations. We got to do it with different strains, different dosages, different timelines, all these different things before we start making any definitive statements. And it's not just going to be the work that YouTube produce. It's going to be work that's collaborative from many different sources so that somebody can do a meta-analysis in the future and make some definitive claims in the context of insomnia disorder, in the context of obstructive sleep apnea. We need to be able to get into that complexity. And right now, those barriers don't allow the research per se. And Dr. Lai, you already hit on this kind of social stigma that exists in society about getting high. I wonder, Dr. Lai, when you talk with patients on this front, is that something that gets brought up quite a bit? Like, I want the benefit, but I don't want to get high. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that social stigma is definitely out there. And often, um, you, when, when, when we started the conversation, or if we ask patients directly if you consume cannabis, uh, often they would hesitate a little bit before they actually respond to that question. I mean, some people were just more interesting that they, they do expecting us to say that, stop question, questioning them as to why you take cannabis. But as a physician, I think we need to be very open-minded and non-judgmental. So when, when we exercise that kind of approach to patients, they start opening up more as to what they take and how they take it, and we can gather more information they'd be able to provide better care. For, for that particular patient or for patient with taking cannabis, which has that strong social stigma associated with that. Uh, I just want to go back to a little bit about the funding. Uh, I totally agree with you that in order to advance medicine, they need to have certain amount of financial investment for us to be able to, to do this kind of study that we wanted to do. In the past, for any kind of funding coming to any studies, particularly cannabis study, uh, they're coming from a private company on so-called a profit organizations. So when a study are funded by a profit organization, there's also a certain bias intrinsically within the studies already. It's obviously they want to see the study have a positive outcome so more product can be sold. We are very grateful. As you know that in Canada, we have socialized medicines. So we have universal health care. So most of our public health delivery are done by a public funded organizations. In our region, we have Interior Health Authority. We're very grateful that they actually have taken on the interest investing human resource and money into the study. Because having a, a non-biased or a non-for-profit organization involving with the study do add a quite a bit of a weight when it comes to advertising the study to the public. A sort of a side note, when we were initially tried to put our advertisement on, on Facebook, our initial publication with initial posting was rejected by Facebook because it was not supposed to advertise anything considered with cannabis or marijuana in it. We somehow be able to get around that and be able to post that. But the bottom one is that when we have a nonprofit, public funded organization that investing, looking into and study cannabis, it does add a bit of a weight and remove that potential social stigma from it. Beautiful clarification. And, and I've ran into that many a time with some of my research on wearable sleep tracking technology, where 
companies have approached me, my mentor, Dr. Plant, about doing studies with them. The reality is studies for them. And oftentimes they won't always approve of the findings if it doesn't align with their mission or more or less selling products. So we do it as independent researchers where we're able to slap these devices on people and not form relationships with companies and so on. But this is a, a bigger issue to tackle. And so we need to have these nonprofit groups that can provide substantial money to recruit all these people to do PSGs, which are not inexpensive, maybe even at home PSGs so we can get better longitudinal comprehensive evaluation of the sleep characteristics. And we can already see how this money's adding up. So this cannot be a independent researcher project. This needs to be a partnership with a group that has money, like a non-for-profit that you alluded to. And I've researched the literature myself, even before this systematic review, just to kind of better understand what effects cannabis may or may not have on sleep. And again, cannabis is a heterogeneous term. There's hundreds of different components to it and so on and so forth. But broadly speaking, I've seen things like THC in particular will suppress REM sleep while maybe enhancing slow wave sleep. There's some mixed results there as well. CBD seems to be inconsistent on whether or not it has some effect on sleep architecture per se and seems to be more related to maybe reducing sleep onset latency. I've seen mediating analysis that suggests that it's really the re relaxation or reduction in pain or anxiety that in turn leads to potentially a better ability to fall asleep those types of things. So I want to open up this question and either one of you who wants to run with it first, you can fight to the death for it. I just want to kind of ask, thinking about it globally, do you expect, do you foresee cannabis, do you see it having a direct effect on the physiology of sleep, indirect pathway, or both? We'll kind of launch from there. My quick comment on that will be that I do suspect this mostly through that secondary pathway. Certainly, this is a, you know, the topic itself is a very complex and we're playing the topics onto a very complex human structure. So, so the question by itself is, it's difficult to really answer and pinpoint out a specific outcome, but what, what we can learn uh, from the systemic review are that for sure, CBD seem to have less effect when it comes to improved sleep quality compared to a THC. THG by itself does have a sedating side effect. So perhaps that's what's causing patient to improve. We put it self-improvement where in terms of reduction of sleep latency, taking shorter time for them to be able to fall asleep. So perhaps that's what it is. But, but if you want to look at the pathophysiology of what THC does and CBD does in terms of binding to different receptors, CB1, uh, and CB2, CB1 is primarily in the cranial system, the peripheral nerve, and that's that the, the THC tend to have a higher affinity for CB1 receptor, which you know primarily is, is the central nerve system. So, so if we were to look at that some uh, physiological and biological pathway, uh, perhaps it does have some direct effect on reducing that sleep latency. And as you also mentioned, Jesse, that THC has been proposed to reduce REM sleep and increase slow wave sleep. But some literature suggesting that increase of slow wave sleep, perhaps only acute phase, chronically, chronic user of THC may have paradoxical effect of, you know, reduction of, of slow wave sleep. So there, there's so many things ongoing 
and, and so many conflicting data. Right now, it's really hard to really pinpoint down. But hopefully, as we have more study and people are looking more at uh, the biochemical pathway and, and try to understand exactly what a cascade downstream effect of binding CB1 and CB2 receptor and how that affects different hormonal and endocrine pathway, hopefully we'll, we'll have more understanding of exactly what they do. But most of the study currently that shows positive outcome for sure are in someone who has pain condition or anxiety slash depression, you know, psychological conditions. Um, so they may be in a mix of primary and secondary outcome are using cannabis in terms of helping those patients to sleep better. But the, the bottom line is that it's really hard to really tell at this point. I, I would just like to add a quick note too on the, the comment that we made about TAC suppressing REM sleep is that at least in our study in a review, we looked at six different studies looking at REM sleep, I believe for eight. None of them showed significant reductions in REM sleep in our sample. One of them even showed a very marginal improvement in it. And I've also seen that claim repeated quite often and cited in different papers. They always go back to the same papers though which are two papers in the 1970s by Feinberg. And in both those studies, he used, like I said earlier, 70 to 210 milligrams of THC. And so when it comes to that suppressing REM sleep, I'm sure there's some sort of dose-dependent relationship going on there. So I'm not even sure if the claim that it presses REM sleep is actually something that, that is really well known at this point. Like, yes, we've seen this in some earlier studies a long time ago with those kinds of doses, but if this is actually the case in general use for 10 milligrams, we can't, we really can't say. That literature often gets overinflated, as you pointed out. I too have kind of landed on that myself where I see that they go back to a small crop of literature. And there is though the anecdote of the REM rebound or the vivid dream rebound that happens when somebody cessates from, can from prolonged cannabis use. And that I think would be supportive of REM suppression if you're having this pronounced vivid dreaming in cessation. So I think that goes along with the theme, but I'm with you that I, we don't really know. And again, what THC, right? Like THC is in itself a heterogeneous term when it comes to the various components that we put into there and the ratios with CBD as well, if it's included and uh, other factors that come into play. And to kind of land our plane on the manuscript itself, we've already touched upon a lot of this already as far as what context we think cannabis may be most applicable when it comes to sleep. And that's the goal here, right? Is to figure out in what situations, with what people, with what dosages and what forms of administration should we apply this substance? We've talked about how in anxiety and in pain situations that could be driving the underlying cause of insomnia, it could be very, very therapeutic based on the preliminary evidence that's out there. I've always wondered though too, we I haven't heard a lot of people talk about potentially leveraging the different routes of administration to treat different characteristics of insomnia. So if somebody is experiencing sleep initiation, maybe we want a fast acting, easily absorbable, you know, sublingual or something form of cannabis. Whereas if somebody experiences more difficulties with sleep maintenance or early morning awakening insomnia, maybe some sort of edible that has a prolonged, slow release would be more effective. Dr. Lai, do you have any thoughts on whether that's an area that we may be able to tease apart in the future or would be worthwhile? I think definitely it's a worthwhile exploring in the long term. Um, as you said that people who have sleep onset insomnia, you want whatever they're adjusting or taking to be fast acting. 
so that they can put them into that sleep stage. For people who have difficulty maintaining the sleep throughout the night, you want it to be long-lasting and sustained throughout the night so they can maintain a good sleep quality. I, I think definitely it's something to look into in the long term. And, and often uh, we, we feel those as a precision medicine where we, you know, we apply specific methods for a specific condition in a specific patient. And hopefully that's something that we can move uh, forward uh, in the long term. Now with our study, the proposed randomized study, we are also hoping to employ a technology called genotyping that's been developed in the US. So what that would do is be able to genotype patient uh, in terms of their enzymatic metabolism. So by understanding how individual would metabolize cannabis, we're hope, hoping to be able to establish a link as to which individual would be responding to whatever substance they were dosing. So that, that's something that we would like to do uh, in the long term as well. In addition to coming up with different dosing and different composition, we'd like to genotype those patients and hopefully to find the patterns. As you already know that if we are ingesting the medication and all those medications get metabolized in the liver or often in the liver and depending on the rate of metabolism, the dosing ingestion may, may be different and the outcome may be different as well. Um, and sublink would definitely would be a good option uh, to bypass those uh, first pass effect um, metabolized by the liver and it definitely can be like fasting, but understanding the genotype of individual patient would help us to design the study better and also to design uh, the therapeutic approach for individual patient better. I love that. We talk so much about inter-individual differences in caffeine sensitivity due to various differences in metabolism. And I don't think that gets brought up, or I really have not heard of it in the context of cannabis, but that's critically important. So I applaud you for pursuing that and including that in your investigations going forward. That's fantastic. And I love that you're approaching this from a precision medicine standpoint. I still maintain it's a bit of a pipe dream and it's a complicated route to that pipe dream, but it's the way we need to go with medicine. We cannot do one size fits all approaches. We need to look at the individual for who they are, their distinct psychology, their distinct ancestry, their distinct genetics, their distinct epigenetics, microbiome, all the ohms, whatever it may be to give the best care possible. And it looks like you're embracing that philosophy on that front. And we've talked about synthetic THC, which has been shown to have therapeutic effects for sleep disordered breathing, I think most principally in the form of obstructive sleep apnea. When I first saw that, I think it was a 2017 study out, I think Phyllis Z may have been senior author on it. I was really surprised because we hear about alcohol being a muscle relaxant, exacerbating sleep disordered breathing problems. And I had a similar mechanism in my brain that cannabis in some form, especially synthetic THC, would have a similar relaxing physiological effect. And so it seemed counterintuitive to apply this in the context of sleep disordered breathing. I have since learned that they had a different mechanism of action that they were targeting, but I was surprised. With your understanding of physiology, both of you, and kind of the context of cannabis, do you think this is a route where it may be a useful application? Clearly, people struggle with PAP therapy at times due to compliance with the mask. So any sort of less invasive approach we can have for treating that condition, I'm all for. So 
Rob, Dr. Lai, do you have any thoughts on kind of the therapeutic application in the context of sleep disorder breathing? Yeah, you know, definitely a path therapy is the most commonly used and approved therapy in patients who suffer from obstructive sleep apnea and sometimes from central sleep apnea as well. But it is cumbersome, um, you know, involved using a mask and tubing connected into a compressor. So patients definitely are looking for other alternative way of having their sleep apnea treated. Over the last few years, there's quite a few newer technology uh, currently on the market that are targeting, addressing, treating those sleep apnea patients. As you mentioned that the cannabis has been studied in the past looking at addressing sleep apnea patients. And the study shows that the HI, which is the number of event index that we measure in the sleep apnea patient has reduced by using cannabis. We also know that there are sleep apnea events are serotonin mediated, a sleep respiratory instability. Some literature suggesting that cannabis actually has anti-serotonergic activity where it antagonizes serotonin, reducing the instability and hence improve a patient's sleep disorder breathing by maintaining a, a more patent airway. So those are the things that has been studied in the past and they seems promising. And, and certainly if we can have more study uh, using more precise dosing and composition and demonstrating that not only the respiratory index has improved to a statistically significant level, the clinical outcome for those patients also improve as well. And ideally, I would also like to see based on their sleep architecture, by, by using cannabis treating the sleep apnea, uh, not only the oxygen level improve, but their sleep architecture in, in terms of the slow wave sleep and REM sleep and also improve. And they are now disrupted in terms of their sleep fragmentation and their sleep is more consolidated. So all, all of this outcome uh, needed to be looked upon uh, in addition to the clinical outcome. And hopefully we can get all that with a further study uh, having more objective data. Perfect. I had some other thoughts about applications in the context of nightmare disorder, but I think Rob largely debunked in some ways my potential rationale for it, which is we would leverage technically maybe a REM suppression to reduce the propensity of dreams. So it's not necessarily a treatment, but rather a management strategy if someone's experiencing like PTSD related nightmare content. I know that there are commercial agencies out there that create products that will actually wake people up as they're entering REM sleep or give them a light vibration to steer them out of REM sleep to avoid potentially having those nightmares. And I see major issues there because REM sleep's pretty important to uh, optimal acute and long-term functioning. So I don't necessarily want to abolish REM sleep, but per se, it seemed to potentially have an application there if maybe the REM relationship maintains going forward. I've seen it applied in the context of restless leg syndrome with some good beneficial output, but is that, again, related to kind of the relaxation and pain side of things rather than any other true sleep promotion? And for me, selfishly, hopefully, I think I would like to dig deeper into whether this could be used as a therapeutic for enhancing slow wave sleep. In one of my research areas, I really focus on idiopathic hypersomnia and hypersomnia disorder, these people who do not derive restoration from their sleep, even though it's continuous and prolonged. And we've shown that there may be deficiencies in slow wave sleep underlying that condition. So perhaps this is a non-invasive, well, relatively innocuous strategy with relatively benign side effects that 
could be utilized to enhance the way of sleep. And in turn, as Dr. Lai pointed out earlier, does that lead to observable changes in their behavior, their psychological perception of symptoms and things like that as well? So it seems like there's a lot of work to be done here. And your group, thankfully, is on the frontier and trying to push this forward. We've already covered a lot of research questions that arose across this, clearly a need to have more consistent methodology. I feel like that's an issue across all science right now. So clearly there's a need there. But outside of the work that the two of you are principally focusing on right now, do you have any ideas for researchers who are kind of interested out there that want to get involved in this space that are either low-hanging fruit right now to tackle or kind of bigger picture items that people could chew on for future investigations? I would say that the main issue will be probably the legal restrictions, but I would really like to see some studies using larger samples for one, but doing it among like the PhDs among um, pain and anxiety related disorders to see if the sleep latency actually reduces. Because there was a study recently also published in sleep looking at insomniacs that both track the sleep diaries as well as the patient's ISIs. Like they filled their ISIs, they did actigraphy, but they also PhDs. And very different results between the PSG sleep onset latencies and the self-reported sleep onsets. So it, it kind of makes me wonder if, you know, sometimes people don't actually report what is actually going on. Maybe you just feel really good falling asleep when they're high. That's kind of one of the things I've hypothesized to. It feels nice. And so it's easy falling asleep that way because it feels good. But whether your sleep onset latency actually reduces isn't so clear. So I'd really like to see, in this sense, some objective evidence looking at those two specific patient populations. I fully agree. And I do think the wearable domain is unlocking in some ways the ability to do more precise, objective measurement outside of laboratory conditions that provide us reasonably accurate, certainly now quantification of sleep and improving on the classification on sleep, which I think will be a next step forward here as they get better at detecting light, deep, REM sleep, whatever they want to call it. And I do know with a little background knowledge that the Sleep Research Society right now is pushing forward a position statement on the use of wearables for sleep and circadian research. So stay tuned for that, because I think that is kind of what you're alluding to, Rob, is, well, PSG is probably inaccessible for what we're trying to accomplish here. And reliance on self-report isn't going to give us the true quantitative validity that we want. Actigraphy has got its, a litany of problems. It doesn't give us the classification depth that we want. So where do we turn to next? We could do at-home ambulatory PSG, but those are cost prohibitive at times. So maybe it is these wearables that are becoming ubiquitous across our society that might be able to unlock us. And I think that's a fascinating way to go is to get better comprehensive out-of-laboratory investigations longitudinally in this space. I think that would be a great place to go. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, so having something is less cumbersome in terms of hooking patient up with EEG and spending a night in a strange environment, it's less ideal to obtain sleep architecture. So if we are able to rely the advancement of the technology to obtain different sleep stages, that would definitely be a big plus. In Canada here, I, I do know there are companies who are investing in technology that are touchless sensor in, in terms of their body positioning to be able to detect different sleep stages, probably not a, to the same position or stage one, two, three, four, and, and slow, but just a simple non-REM slow wave versus uh, a REM would be a, a big advancement. 
And there are also companies in Canada are trying to use a sensor, like short waves infrared sensor to, to detect sleep apnea as well as sleep status. So those are technologies that is out there. And hopefully uh, with the advancement of our technology, those can come about quite quickly in the, in the long term. Beautifully said. And I could talk to both of you for the entire day, but we cannot do that here on the SRS podcast. So I must close down today's interview. I will thank both of you, Rob Velzebor, soon to be future Dr. Rob Velzebor. I'll just put that out there now uh, when you complete your PhD. And Dr. Wayne Lai, thank you so much for finding the time to discuss this investigation and, and share your wisdom with our audience. Yet, before I let you go, and we'll start with Dr. Lai, and then we'll conclude with Rob here, I do have a final question, and it is the hardest hitting question. So, Rob, your boxing background may be necessary here coming hard on the paint on this one. But Dr. Lai, if you are afforded unlimited funding to explore a singular sleep or circadian research topic, what would you investigate? You know, I would definitely look at the genotyping. I'm looking at the DNA structure and how individual responding to the treatment. Uh, in this case, would be the ingesting of uh, the cannabis. And Rob, the only constraint I'm putting on you, because I want to see where you're going with your PhD work as well, and maybe it's connected to this, but it has to be related to sleep and or circadian research. Unlimited funding, no constraints. What would you investigate? Uh, sorry, probably not so surprising, but I find this topic really fascinating. It, the, the fact that the objective evidence, at least the diagnostic stuff, doesn't show or reflect the subjective experience of people, I found a really interesting issue. So I'd love to see a lot more work done. And if we could do that, that would be great on... Uh, diagnostic studies, looking at all these different patient populations and what their experience with cannabis are and kind of teasing out like what the differences are between what they subjectively report and what we objectively see in the data and trying to make sense of what's happening there. So for sure, I would say to start with those patient populations where we do think there are improvements and that's like I said, probably the pain related and the anxiety related um, issues that people are having and seeing what happens to their sleep. Well, you have my full appreciation for pushing this forward, both of you. Uh, I really do appreciate your time and more your perspectives. I think they were really well grounded in approaching this from an empirical, logical perspective, which is necessary because I think a lot of people approach the space, even if they're researchers, with biases in place. And we need to look at this without bias because that is science. So I get that ideology from both of you. I appreciate it. I look forward to having you back on here in years when you publish your findings from the ongoing upcoming investigations. But thank you both again for your time. And all I ask is you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much, Jesse, for the invitation. And I wish you have a wonderful day as well. Thanks as well, Jesse. That was, that was great. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee, for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. 
This includes Katrina Burroughs and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Ruloff Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.